Welcome to the Man Up to Cancer podcast. I'm Trevor Maxwell. I'm a stage four colon cancer survivor, and I've got a message for other men. You don't have to go through this alone. What does it mean to man up to cancer? It means reaching out instead of isolating. It means having the courage to accept help along the way. To me, manning up isn't just about being tough. It's about knowing that we're stronger and smarter as a pack than we are as lone wolves. Hey everybody, welcome to another episode of the Man Up to Cancer podcast. I have been trying to track down this guest for a while, but man, he's a teacher and it's the fall and this time of year is tough. Stephen Huff, Stephen, welcome to the show. Hey Trevor, thanks so much for having me on. It's really uh it's really a blessing to be here. Awesome. I'm really appreciative of your time and uh you got a lot going on. So, Stephen is from Nashville, Tennessee. He is a husband, father, high school teacher, (laughs) and he is also a former professional baseball player in the Chicago White Sox organization. In 2017, when Stephen was just 29 years old, he was diagnosed with inoperable stage four lung cancer. His disease is currently stable and he remains in active treatment. Not long after his diagnosis, Stephen and his wife Emily started the Huff Project, a nonprofit with a mission to erase the negative stigma associated with lung cancer and to raise money for research that will help prevent future cases and advance treatment options. The Huff Project is a powerhouse, and and Stephen is a powerhouse in, in lung cancer and cancer advocacy in general and in men's health. Thanks so much for taking the time to be here. I know you also have your hands full at home because you have a new addition to the family. Tell us a little bit about that. Uh, yes, <laughs> yes, that is true. <laughs> so my my uh, wife and I, we... we Gosh, I don't know where to start, but we start. We made the decision, I think, gosh, a couple of years ago, that despite the diagnosis and, and the journey, we we wanted to to start a family. That was something that's great. We knew long before we met, and so about you know a year or two into our marriage, we started exploring options with with the treatment I'm on. They they definitely said, you know, it's not really an option while you're on the treatment. So before you start, you know, why don't you make arrangements? And so thankfully we did. And, uh, and gosh, two years later, uh, a, a lot of medical bills, shots, uh, you name it. And we have a, a, a healthy <laughs> baby boy. He, he entered the world in January. Awesome. And so he's almost eight months old now. Did you name him after Frank Thomas, my favorite White Sox player? <laughs> I should have. I mean, he'd be a first bout, first bout Hall of Famer, right? <laughs> Oh, that's awesome. Congratulations Thank uh, to you. you and Emily. That's fantastic. Thank um, you so much. Yeah. And and so, yeah, so you're a high school teacher. So you do you teach right there in Tennessee? I do. I teach just south of Nashville in a little suburb called Franklin. And I'm, I'm from South Nashville originally. I, I knew growing up that I always wanted to, you know, settle down with work and sports and everything. I traveled a lot through my 20s and so when I just made the decision to teach, I, I love mm-hmm. this area, Franklin, and my wife and I, we love the area. So that's when we bought a house and decided to kind of just make our roots. And what do you teach there? It's a funny story. You should ask. So uh, <laughs> I, I always wanted to teach history. That was my thing. I, I love history. I'm fascinated with especially American history. And when I went back to graduate school, I got my master's in education. I was all geared up to teach history. 
And so I came back to Nashville in the worst possible time to find a teaching job in October because school starts in August. And every, mm-hmm. everywhere I looked, they were booked. They, they were at capacity. There was no openings. And I'm scrolling through jobs one day, and all of a sudden, this job pops up on my screen. It says business, business education. So I said, oh, well, you know, oh, wow. let's see what that's about. So I went into the interview, and the, the job was for a coding teacher. So computer science, like web design, coding, just stuff that was completely foreign to me. <laughs> and so I sold them on the fact that I love to teach. I'm I'm coachable myself. And they said, right. well, they said, well, why don't you try it out? And we'll see, you know, if you like it, you're, you're certified to teach. And, you know, you obviously are, are excited to get into a classroom. So here I am. Right. Gosh, right. that was in 2016. So here I am almost five years later, still teaching computer science. <laughs> oh, my gosh. That's amazing. Yes, it is. <laughs> so that clearly speaks to me, to your motivation as an individual to take on something, a challenge. Oh, absolutely. <laughs> it, you know, those first, like with starting any new job, it's, it's like, you know, you feel so overwhelmed, but with, with starting a new job, knowing absolutely nothing about the content, it was, it was like insane. But thankfully, I mean, I was coached up. They put me in some programs. I learned, I stayed awesome. ahead of the kids. You know, I was one day ahead. I, I became a master <laughs> at, you know, when kids would ask me questions, I became a master at like, you know, well, what do you think we should do here? Like, let's <laughs> figure this out together, you know? And so it turned out to be a great situation. Yeah. Sometimes it's the individual, not the content and, and, and what you can do with that. And yeah. And changing, the, changing those lives, making those lives better for those kids. That's awesome, man. So we do need to talk about baseball before we start talking about the C word. Um, so I, uh, like most most boys growing up in Maine, I had dreams of playing for the Red Sox. Some of my earliest memories were going to Fenway and Jim Rice being out there. Um, that dream lasted until ninth grade when I realized I was neither physically capable nor emotionally capable of pursuing that kind of dream. Um, but you... Uh, you had that dream and pursued it. Tell us and our audience a little bit about your baseball career. I had the same dream, Trevor. I, my family is from the Northeast. My entire mom's side of the family is from the Boston, Connecticut area. So I grew up watching the Red Sox and love it. And yeah, I can I can relate with you on that one. Any except uh, you're younger than me, so you were like <laughs> what, like Mike Mike Greenwell or like who's out there? <laughs> I'm I'm like uh, I fell in love with obviously the World Series teams, but. Um, I was, okay. I was, you know, I was a big, I was a pitcher myself, so I always pulled for the pitchers, and I'm left-handed, and so left-handed pitchers, you know, anytime I'm scrolling through a game, I always watch the left-handed pitchers. Um, so, you know, I have a long list of guys that I idolized growing up, Tom Glavins, you know, the other, <sighs> those sorts of guys. Yeah, I mean, when I was a kid in the '80s, with the so I'm old. How old, how old are you right now? I am 32. Okay, so I'm about a decade older than you. So I was like 10 years old when the Red Sox were in the World Series in like 86 versus the Mets. And that season, my favorite pitcher was Bruce Hurst, fantastic lefty for the Red Sox. Um, Mm -hmm. And I loved Clemens, of course, but Bruce Hurst was amazing. Um, uh, But then, yeah. You know, so so you about a decade later, later, I can't remember any lefties for the Sox at that point. But Pedro was was certainly front and center when you were. 
Oh man, it Into was those teams. Yeah. It was like the the '90s. So you know, living in the South in Tennessee, really the only games we could get on television were the Braves. The Braves. And so yeah. I became a Braves fan just by proximity, and of course, the '90s we were the Braves were littered with pitchers. I mean, we you you have three first ballot Hall of Famers. Mm. You got Maddox, Smoltz, Glavin, and and then that was a. You know, my dad loved the Braves. He's from the South. And so we watched the Braves growing up. So I watched, I, I pulled for two teams. Um, but the 90s were just, oh, man, it was the best. And that's when, you know, yeah. baseball was just exploding. And, and that's when all the guys started hitting all the home runs. And so, you know, just like every other kid, I, I just fell head over heels for baseball. That was that was something that, what not like a fam. my family, you know, loves sports, but um baseball yeah. was my sport i gosh i love playing baseball yeah so what was your trajectory then and when did you sort of realize that that could be a, a you know an actual professional pursuit for you i played all sports in high school and, and so baseball was my favorite i was never you know the best or the the greatest but i i really i set myself i set my focus my junior year and I said, you know what? I'm going to do everything I can to make myself the best pitcher I can. I'm going to do lessons. I'm going to I'm going to eat right. I'm going to exercise, weight lift, do all these things. I'm really going to commit and do summer leagues and everything. And so from my transitioning from the age of like 16 to 17, I slimmed up. I got in shape. I got strong. And I went from pitching probably in the 70 mile an hour range to like the 80 80s 85 mile an hour range and I'll never yeah, yeah, I'll yeah. never forget pitching in this tournament and you know there wasn't that many college scouts there there was maybe like five or six but the the baseball field as you're you're aware there's always like four or five fields and there's parents at every field well, by the by the by the, by the fourth inning, they're all of the um, scouts that were there were all on my field, you know, watching us play, watching me pitch, and so um, yeah. I think that was like the real turning point for me, and that's when I started to get recruited, and and uh, that's when you know I started to realize like, hey, this is something that I can do at the next level, because I think every kid has aspirations of playing college right i mean that's sure you know oh, yeah, i want to I, if i can get a scholarship man uh, how cool would that be and so it was kind of cool to see that develop and then obviously i, I went to college and, and pitched four years at a at a division one school in tennessee called austin p uh go governors yep you you may yep. have seen him on on espn football every now and then but oh for sure and so i pitched there for four years i was a starter left-handed and uh, pitched well enough to get signed by the Chicago White Sox. And then, uh, yeah, I guess I had a sh really short professional career, but at least I had a career. So that was kind of cool. <laughs> oh, I, absolutely. And what? so what year was it that you were drafted? Or did you get drafted like a couple times if you stayed in school for four years? So they changed, they changed the draft rules, uh, gosh, when I was in high school a few different times. You know, they used to do where you could get drafted in high school and then then they turned that off for a couple of years. And so I got drafted in 2010. I was 21 years old at the time. Mm -hmm. And it was right after my senior year. And I signed for a Snickers bar. You know, I, I, I signed for anything. <laughs> I said, just let me play. I don't care. I don't, I don't need a signing bonus. And, uh, it was funny because I'll never forget. I went to, um, 
as a pitcher, you know, like we were free to play golf as much as we want. You know, we couldn't mess up our swing. And I was playing golf with a group of, of my buddies. I left my cell phone in my car on draft day. There's It's a four or five day process. And left my phone in the car. I, we played nine holes. I, I went to my car to get my phone. And I must have had like 30 missed calls, you know, 100 text yeah, messages. And my scout. Really blowing up. Yeah, my scout was calling me going, you know, we just drafted you. We just drafted you. And my mom was calling. My dad's calling me. So that was pretty fun experience just to, to go through that. And so, yeah, it was, it was really great. And so when did your pro career come to an end? <laughs> it was pretty short. It was just a couple years. And I, I had some lingering arm issues that carried over from college. And so I think it was my second spring training. I'm in Arizona. I started to have some some shoulder issues. And I talked to the trainer. We kind of said, look, this is something that we can fix long term, but it's going to, you know, it's going to put you down a while. It's going to take you out for probably 16 months. And we'd like for you to rehab here. We don't pay you very much anyways, but we definitely can't pay you in off season. <laughs> and I kind of thought it over and I said, look, you know, this is, this has been a great opportunity, a great run for me. I'm gosh, 23, almost 24 years old now. I think I'm going to yeah. kind of just quietly bow out. And uh, so I did. And that was that was really when I started to transition into, well, maybe I'll give this coaching thing a shot. Yeah. So so mid 20s. Uh, yeah. Getting into that. I think I, I read somewhere or I remember you speaking about you got your cancer diagnosis a couple months before your wedding date. Yes, that is correct. And so to put it into a timeline, yeah. Uh, let's see. I got released in in probably 2013. I made the decision. I had actually had a job for a couple years, hated it, and then decided I wanted to get into teaching and coaching. So I that's yes. I went back to graduate school in 2014. And uh, while I was in graduate school, the the you know they have these GA opportunity graduate assistants. This school in Georgia was looking for someone to help coach baseball while, you know, you could get your master's degree. So I said, hey, this will, I'll kill two birds with one stone. So I moved to Perfect. Georgia yeah. and started my master's in education while I was teaching at a sure. Division II school there called University of West Georgia. Mm -hmm. And that was 2014. So uh, I got made it through my first year. I coached um, in, this, in this summer league called the Northwoods League. I had a, an amazing time. And um, not to get sidetracked, but no, it's good. One of my colleagues that I coached with in that league played on the 69 Miracle Mets. And so that was <laughs> such a cool experience to just to just, you know, soak up all of his knowledge for a couple of years. He's a great friend of mine. His name is Duffy Dyer. He was a catcher. Love it. Yeah. He caught uh, Steve Candelari's no hitter for the Pirates, which was, you know, <laughs> which was really cool. Uh, That's just, awesome. You, yeah, you know, just a wealth of knowledge. And so um, back to my story, I guess. <laughs> so I, I, I did this for a couple of years. I, I graduated in this, let's see, the spring of 2016. So as I am finishing up, you know, my graduate program and coaching, I start to get what I thought what I would describe as shortness of breath. So I'd be mm. I would be talking to you. And then all of a sudden, it would feel like someone would come up and kind of jab me in the stomach. And you know that feeling of just like you get your, your breath cut off. And, you know, I, at the time, I was like, gosh, 27 years old. And I'm like, yeah, you know, this is just part of it. This is like what happens when you get 
fat and old and out of shape and <laughs> you know you're just not running every day so so I didn't think anything of it I I as a matter of fact I just was like hey this is this is nothing nothing even worth going to see a doctor about and um right right and really I ignored it I ignored it for the better part of about 6 months it got to the point where I had trained my mind to talk through it. I could I could talk around the shortness of breath. And wow. so I moved back home. I moved back home at the end of 2016, got a teaching job. And my fiance, we were engaged at the time. My fiance and I had set a date for uh, our wedding in September of 2017. So I'm jacked. I mean, this is like the, you know, I'm about to get married. This is the start of my next, the next chapter of my life. And that's when eventually I, you know, I got my diagnosis just a few months later. I guess, was there a triggering point that did someone force you to go see the doctor? (laughs) Yes. Yes. My fiance did. (laughs) Now wife. I was, um, gosh, I'll never forget. My best friend in the world was getting married. And of course, you know, everybody has a bachelor party. I got back home from his bachelor party and I felt awful. I just felt like, you know, I had the flu and everything else. So of course, you know, thinking, Hey, this is just returning from a bachelor party. This is just the normal way your body feels right. Like, and so, uh, I went into a walk-in clinic and, uh, they, they gave me a once over and they said, Oh yeah, you're fine. You you know, it looks like you may have some bronchitis and they gave me some um, antibiotics and just let me go. And it wasn't until, gosh, those didn't work. I had to go back in and, uh, I noticed a a lump appear above my right collarbone. And that's when I I went back in, got that checked out. Oh, you don't have bronchitis. You have pneumonia. So I was actually misdiagnosed twice, x-rayed twice. And then that kind of got the ball rolling. That didn't work. A month later, went to see a specialist, you know, oh, you have this pericardial effusion in this. Okay. All right. Let's take some more drugs. Um, and it eventually took about six months to get that diagnosis. Wow. So I talk about um, my colon cancer diagnosis as a, you know, I was 41, um, certainly not a professional athlete, but felt like I was in pretty good shape. Um, <laughs> you know, total, I, I call it a life asteroid. Certainly that must apply to you. I mean, no frame of reference for a cancer diagnosis coming at you at that stage in your life. Absolutely. I mean, as you know, there's no, no one is, I don't think no one is prepared for that. I mean, how are you prepared for that? I think that's it in the deep crevice of your brain. That's our, all of our own worst fear is like getting a diagnosis like that. I just remember for me, it was so surreal because you're sitting there in the waiting room and you're waiting for that confirmation or that. Right. I just remember the doctor going, look, Steven, this doesn't look good, but it, it doesn't have to be cancer. It can be something else, right? It could be, um, I forget what the word he called it, sarcoidosis. He, he said, mm-hmm. it could be sarcoidosis. I, and I never prayed, you know, for like something so strange in my life, but I prayed every day for three days. I was like, God, please let it be sarcoidosis. Whatever that is, that's got to be better than cancer. Well, right. Cause well, when the dot, when they look at you, you are a healthy, strong young man. Like when someone looks at you, that's the last thing that's going to come to mind. Yep. And so what was it when they came back? If you could put it in layman's terms, 
What did they tell you? So the doctor walked into the room. He said, look, Stephen, unfortunately, I got some bad news for you. It's kind of, it's the worst thing possible. It's, it's adenocarcinoma of the lung, which we would classify that as a non-curable cancer. And as soon as I heard that, you know, it, I, I was gone. I was, it was like my, I lifted out of my body Everything else, it was like, um, what's the right. the peanuts, you know, when the teacher that goes, wah, 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 wah. oh, yeah, yes, yes. that's what it was like. It, my, thankfully, my wife was there. She was able to kind of like listen and digest. But I mean, it was, yeah, it was so surreal. And he even said that the doctor said that he goes, you know, Stephen, this is just totally out of left field. He goes, I, I don't see people that are young and healthy get stage four lung cancer. This is not you know, this is, you're, you're the atypical. Tell me a little bit about what it was like processing it. I mean, I, I tell people that you, you go into shock, like not the shock where it's an emergency, but a low level shock where you're not really processing things mm. the way you did before. Oh, absolutely. I didn't hear a word after that. When I left, the only thing I could think about, I just remember the only thing I could think about was I'm going to die and I'm going to die tomorrow. Like, that's it. This is the end. I mean, Right. Go ahead and write the will up. This is this is the this is it. And so I didn't hear any of the things that even when he started talking about the treatments, like, oh, there's treatments right, for right. this and this and this. You know, it was shock. You're exactly right. That's the best word to describe it. I, I was laying in bed, you know, and after you get the diagnosis, I'm not sure what's worse. I'm not sure if getting the diagnosis is worse or waiting, you know. And I, I remember going home and I did, I was not able to sleep at all. I mean, I'm just lying in bed, you know, and of course you, my significant other, my wife, Emily, she was my fiance at the time. She's, you know, trying to be there emotionally. My family's trying to be there emotionally. And it's like, you just, you don't want to talk to anyone. You don't want to even like be positive or maybe if you are being positive, it's totally fake. It's just yeah. superficial. Like, yeah, I'm going to beat this. But deep down inside, you're like, no, I'm not. This is not. This is the end. Yeah. You know? So it's, gosh, I just remember lying in bed and looking at the ceiling and being like, you know, what? what's going to happen? This, You know, I'm yeah. just starting my life, this girl, and I've dragged this poor girl into this situation. And so there was not much hope at all in the beginning, for sure. <laughs> Um, I just, it's, there's similar themes with my diagnosis and yours. So it just, sometimes I'm at a loss for words, but so you get the diagnosis, you go into shock mode. It's almost like you go into this, like you're like primal animal that's been wounded mode and you just want to like climb in a hole and just disappear. How do you go from that mode to coming up with a plan of action and how long did that take? And sort of how, how did that develop for you where you went from the shock of the diagnosis to making a plan for what was going to happen next? That is a great question, because as you know, when you're handed that diagnosis, it isn't just as simple as, OK, you know, let's start treatment tomorrow. At least it wasn't <laughs> for me. No, no. For me and with lung cancer specifically, they have all this biomarker testing. You, you, you want to get genes sequenced. And so they want to take tissues of your tumor and they want to see if, yep. you know, you have some kind of mutation driven receptors on there that they can target. Because although lung cancer, you know, there's not a whole lot of treatments for certain mutations, there is a whole lot of treatments. 
And so I had to wait like mm. two weeks, I think, for this biomarker testing. So they're like, okay, here's your diagnosis and uh, we'll see you in two weeks. Just uh, try not to think about it too much. You know, just, you go back to normal life <laughs> and you're like, what? What in the hell am I supposed to do now? And so I went home and I was just in complete denial. I mean, it, it was like I, I had not even the shock. The shock wore off, I think, after the first few days. And then I went straight into denial. Like, this isn't yeah. happening. This isn't me. This is not real. And I remember in the little burst that I would sleep, I would when I would first wake up, I would almost like it was like it wasn't real for like yeah. 30 seconds. And then you're oh, like, and then you're sitting there like, oh, God, never mind. It Here is it real. Yeah, it is yes. real. Yes, yes. Same thing. Yep. So part of that denial was I just, I didn't want to know anything about it. I didn't want to research. I didn't want to, I didn't want anyone telling me like, hey, you know, this is your statistics. These are, because in my brain, the less I focused on it, the better. Mm. And and that wears off, you know, I mean, that, that's not, that doesn't last forever. Eventually you get to the point where you're like, you start to get curious and inquisitive, like, okay, I, I all right, I got to get my gear on. Like I got to get. I got to get ready for battle here. So for me, it was probably a couple of weeks. Um, It wasn't until I got the results from my genetic testing. And I think a turning point was when I found out that I have this this mutation that I could take a, a drug for, an oral pill for, and not necessarily go like straight into chemo. And so for me, that was the turning point. When I learned that I could take this little pill, life could kind of resume mostly back to normal. You know, you're never normal after that. But uh, I wasn't going to go into chemo. And so I was like, man, this is something that I can I can do. This is something that I can just like take at home. Like, is this for real? Like, I don't have to like come into a hospital. And they're like, no, you can just take it at home. And so we we came up with a game plan. We were going to start this drug, and um, and as slowly but surely, you know, I I started to kind of get the confidence. Like, okay, all right, one day at a time, right? Like, this is good. I'm starting to feel better, and uh, and yeah, that's really got the ball rolling back towards the positive. So, man up to cancer is all about the truth that that men tend to isolate in some ways in general more than women when they get diagnosed and one of the issues here is as men you're kind of especially for you you're a young man you're about to get married you're very serious about you know starting a family and and being um a provider and all those things and then all of a sudden you get blindsided by this diagnosis and your roles are all of a sudden really put into risk they're challenged in a way that you've never had before. And I think, you know, coming out of that baseball culture too, it's like, was it tough for you to like, be like, man, why is this happening to me? Why am I the one young guy who all of a sudden is facing this stage four cancer diagnosis when all my other bros and everybody else is just going about their lives? Absolutely. Absolutely. It's something that I still struggle with to this day, you know, the why me, because like you said, I I thought I had take really good care of myself. I mean, I ran. I, I was hypervigilant about everything I ate. I exercised. And so to get a cancer diagnosis, let alone a lung cancer diagnosis, was just a complete, you know, shock. And so 
The one thing I think that cancer does more than anything yeah. else is it takes away that feeling of control in your life. And up to that point in my life, up to my diagnosis, I had control of my life. You know, anything that I set my mind to, I did, whether that was That's athletically right. or career. And so I was in charge of this thing, man. I was driving it. No one else was driving it. And so the cancer diagnosis is like, all right, scoot over, I'm driving, you know? And so that <laughs> feeling of like, oh crap, man, this is like, I don't like this at all. Like someone else is driving the car now, like, uh, was so foreign to me, especially in the sports world where you know the equity that you're putting in. When you do the extra repetitions, you spend the extra time at the field or in the gym or in the weight room, you know that that pays off long-term. And you can push yourself to say, like, I'm going to be better than the next guy. You know, like, I'm going to push myself. And with cancer, it's not really the same. You know, you can't, there's no, like, all right, if you if you go out and you run a mile every day, you're going to beat cancer. Well, I, I'll be out there running six miles a day. You know, it, there's not a right. tangible, like, thing for you. It's all mental. It's just so mental. And it's very it's very different in that sense. Absolutely spot on. And and did you feel that sense of isolation like you were all of a sudden out of the pack? Yes, completely. Because to me, it was just so hard because anytime someone tries to empathize with you, unless they have been through it themselves, it's hard for you to embrace that. So my fiance, for example, or my you know, my mother, or my brother. You know, they say, Steve, yeah. you're going to beat this. You're going to be okay. You're strong. And, I, and my first reaction is, well, it's easy for you to say, you know, like that's <laughs> like you don't have cancer, you know, and that's just our. And so you, you what you do is you isolate yourself. You drive yourself away from the people that are trying to help you. And right. and it makes you feel it's like pouring salt in open wound because all you want is someone to be there for you. And you just want to talk and you want to express those deep dark feelings but at the same time you drive people away with you know that that whole attitude right totally did the same thing and we're lucky that the people who love us love us enough to be stubborn <laughs> <laughs> and stick with us and say you know what because they they have the choice to just be like oh well we'll just let, let him go because we're trying to push him away but man they love us enough to get through that hard time and get to the point where you realize that you got to depend on those rocks in our lives. And I, and it sounds like you have one rock in particular, <laughs> Emily, who has stuck by you through this whole thing. Amen to that. Amen to that. It's, there's never been a, a moment where Emily has not been with me. She hasn't been right there by my side to help and to be, you know, comfort me. And, and I am just so grateful that I have her in my life because not everybody has someone that can, you know, that they can talk to and relate to in that way. And so it's, that's right. It's such a blessing. We just gotta, you know, as guys, we just gotta recognize those people in our lives and we have to, we have to embrace them for sure. My wife, your wife, I mean, they are, I always say it's so much easier to be the patient, you know, to be the spouse or the care partner or whatever, like to, to be that other, it's like, that's brutal. And, and they make that decision every day to stand by our sides and um, and go along the path with us, 
you know, no matter what. At one point, I tried to drive my wife away so bad. I was like, you need to leave. Like, I need you to move out. And she's like, nope. <laughs> Same exact thing with these. I'll never forget. I was diagnosed Memorial Day weekend. And in Tennessee, that's the first holiday in summer break. Okay. So to add context to my diagnosis, I got my first teaching job uh, October of 2016. And I made it through my first full year as a teacher. I was on cloud nine. This was this was yeah. like this was amazing because all these stressful <laughs> nights and teaching and grading everything. So I'm celebrating my first summer as a teacher. Part of the reason that we love teaching so much is because we have summers, and so I'm celebrating my first summer with a cancer diagnosis. And so, you know, when when my wife and I we were engaged at the time when I when I was diagnosed, I did the exact same thing. I said, you know what? We're not getting married. This is it. Like, cut it off. You know, get out while you can. And my wife said, absolutely not. We are getting married. I'm not sure if it's because it. we put a deposit down on the on the uh, uh, wedding venue or, you know, it, if she just wanted to. But anyway, yeah, she yeah, goes, yeah. she's like, Stephen, like, we are still getting married. This This is not going to change how our relationship is. And uh, thank God, because, you know, she knew that I would just be I would be, I would have so much regret if like we had like, postponed the wedding. Thankfully, we didn't. And uh, we were we married in September. We just celebrated. As a matter of fact, we just celebrated our three year anniversary, which was on September the 16th. And so Congratulations, um, here we man. are. Yeah. Three years later, man. So we made it. <laughs> We're going to get into some of the stuff that you've been doing lately, but clearly you, you were able to get through that isolation and start finding your mojo again, finding ways to express yourself and move forward. What were some of the other tools or people that you relied on or that were important to you to sort of dig out of that hole for you? There's quite a few that I use still to this day, and I'll be completely candid with you. I never in a million years would have ever thought that I would have gotten into things like meditation, yoga, prayer, you know, doing these things. Because for me, it was just a matter of, okay, you know, buckle up your boots, like put your put your <laughs> sweats on, let's get to work, let's grind it out. So for someone to say, okay, sit in a room, you know, and focus on your breathing like that. I was like, no shot. Are you kidding me? But uh, I got to tell you, I, I got to be completely honest. I, I tried to talk to a therapist and, you know, I, I was in one ear out the other, focused on your yep. breathing, mindful meditation. And, and, and so for me, it was, um, it, it was finally when I decided to embrace some of these things and really try not like, <laughs> you know, halfway, half, <laughs> haphazardly, but I did. I said, okay, I'm, I'm really going to, I'm really going to give it a college try here. And yep. it was like, it, you know, for me, I remember the first time that I, I really had this, like this, like cathartic uh, meditation where I was like, man, that I really feel better after that. You know, I really feel like relieved. And so finding mm. for me, it was finding outlets. It was, it was staying busy, especially in those first few months. Because idle hands, oh my God, you know, if the more I sit at home and the more that I, I feel bad for myself and I feel sorry. So it was, it was getting out of the house, going for walks, meditating, finding things that I didn't 
had never even done like, you know, um, hiking, biking, and just finding ways, outlets uh, to kind of get myself, get my mind off of the diagnosis and focus more on, okay, life is going to get back to normal. I need to get back, you know, to, to a, yeah. a normal frame of mind. And so I really was able to, to dig myself out of this feeling bad for myself, didn't want to get out of bed. And uh, eventually I was able to, you know, kind of break that chain. For your treatment wise, you were able to get on a, a drug targeted to a specific mutation. And, and is that the same drug that you've been on for a while now? It is. It is the same drug. I, so knowing absolutely nothing about cancer, the only thing I knew was that you did chemo. And so when I was told there was this biomarker testing, like I'm sure you've learned in colon cancer, I was told I had this ALK positive mutation, which they see in about 5% of non-small cell lung cancer cases. They see that the ALK positive is, is typical in younger, healthier non-smokers. Now, the reason they don't know why, but they just know that that's a correlation. So I said, great, I'm in the 5%. Okay, this is awesome, right? Like there's not going to be any <laughs> options. Basically, they're going to kick me to the curb and say, good luck. But I found out in researching pretty quickly that um, there was actually three drugs for out positive patients when I was diagnosed. Now there's like five. And the reason being is because they know um, they, they have it narrowed down to these specific pathways and resistant pathways. And and I am on the original drug. When I uh, started taking that medicine, the PFS was yep. progression free survival was 24 months. So the doctors, yep. you know, according to studies said 24 months, this is, um, this is, we hope, right? So here I am. Yeah. 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 37 yeah. months later and that number is moving. So the drug is so new, the number's moving as I move. Yes. And so hopefully, right. you know, it lasts forever. It, it probably won't, but that's okay. Uh, because you know, that's just, that's life. And so, I, the only other treatments I've had, I've had um, some SBRT. I had just a very, very minor uh, progression back in August of 2019. And they just said, hey, look, we can hit it with some radiation. You can stay on the drug and hopefully the drug will last a couple more years. And so I said, awesome. And I'm in a similar boat with my regimen. Uh, there's no long-term data, so it's moving with me. And <laughs> <laughs> We're on the cutting um, yeah. edge of research. Forever. <laughs> we are science yeah. projects. I love it. Um, we are science projects. <laughs> let's talk about the Huff Project. Tell me how it came to be. It's a long story, but to make it as brief and I guess as descriptive <laughs> as possible, my wife and I were driving home from the cancer center here in Nashville that we go to, Vanderbilt Ingram Cancer Center. And in Tennessee, they have this initiative where you can get a specialized license plate, and the license plate is in support of some nonprofit. So you see these license plates all over the place. Well, we just sure. we yeah. just happened to be sitting in a red light, and I saw one for Susan G. Komen breast cancer. So I, I'd never in my life, I don't think I'd ever noticed that ever. But as you know, when you're diagnosed with cancer, you start noticing everything, especially, you know, cancer related. Yeah, buddy. Yep. <laughs> and so I said, let's get the lung cancer plate. When we get home, let's get online to order that thing. So we got home and there is no lung cancer plate. 
There's like no. there's like maybe three. There's like uh, breast cancer, I think maybe prostate and pediatric, maybe. Those are it. I mean, that's yeah. it. So yeah. So right. I'm, I'm trying to figure out, I'm wrapping my brain around this whole thing. Like, why is there no lung cancer plate? Well, you know, that same doctor's appointment, my doctor said, Stephen, you know, how are you dealing with this mentally? Has anyone asked you what caused your cancer? Did you smoke? And I said, well, yeah, people ask me that all the time. She goes, well, do you know why? I said, no. I said, because lung cancer patients, you know, smoke. And she goes, yes and no, because a lot of people correlate the two. There's this stigma that every lung cancer patient was a smoker or is a smoker. And they, you know, somehow they did it to themselves. And here I right. am, you know, 29 years old. I'm diagnosed young, healthy. I can count on one hand how many times I've smoked in my life. And so I know <laughs> for a fact smoking did not cause my lung cancer. And I'm like, no, well, that, right. you know, I'm just sitting there like, that's kind of, you know, that's kind of dumb, right? Like, there's this stigma and I get it. I understand. I was definitely in that crowd before my diagnosis. And so what I did was I said, well, let's change that. What, what can I do to change that? And she said, honestly, the best thing you can do is to tell your story. And I said, mm -hmm. okay, let's start there. So I, I went to the, the DMV. I got all the paperwork needed to, to do the, uh, I wanted to do a lung cancer plate. She goes, okay, who's your nonprofit? And I'm like, what are you talking about? She goes, you need a nonprofit to do this. So that really got the ball rolling for me. I said, I said, I, I, I can create a nonprofit. How hard could that be, right? <laughs> In the middle of just being newly married, teaching, uh, you know, everything else. I said, I'll just do this nonprofit thing. So we did the paperwork. It's actually in Tennessee. It's pretty, pretty relatively straightforward. And, and you know, I got a little bit of yeah. guidance and, um, my wife and I were just like, hey, you know, the, the license plate's a great idea, but it's means to a bigger goal. We want to change the stigma. We want to raise money. And so we started to brainstorm. That's when we came up with, uh, we came up with two fundraising events that we did our, our, our first year. We did a songwriter night and we did a golf tournament, I guess, every year now for the last three years. And we actually, uh, coronavirus kind of messed everything up this year. But here we are uh, in 2020 and we have raised over $120,000 for lung cancer research. And uh, it's been it's been pretty miraculous ride. Wow. And so all yeah. of it all of it goes to research. You know, my wife and I and my family, we run it. None of us take any money from it. It's just something that we really enjoy. We're passionate about. And we try to just spread the word, you know, as best we can. Where do people find you online? <laughs> well, they can find me online. I, you know, social media is is uh, probably where I'm I'm at the most. I, I have social handles called at lung cancer dude. And then we have a yep. website called uh, thehuffproject.org. And it has some information on there about like, what are our events are? Where does our money go? You know, things of that nature. And uh, yeah, it's got some information of just about lung cancer in general. So I imagine that, you know, like all nonprofits, COVID has kind of, uh, changed your plans. What are you, what's on the horizon for you right now? And what are you doing um, for the rest of the year with the Huff Project? So normally we do a golf tournament in October and then we do our songwriter event in November because November is Lung Cancer Awareness Month. And this year, because of all the restrictions, we're going to move the golf tournament to the spring and we're probably just going to postpone the songwriter event until 2021 just because 
last year at our songwriter event, we had such a large crowd. We had like four or 500 people. And it's just too hard to to try to do something like that inside. And it, it, with the winter approaching, everyone's like, it's probably going to be a little too cold to try to do something outside. So we're going to put that on the 2021 calendar. But thankfully, we, we still made enough through um, donations. We did a couple smaller things this year, earlier this year, that we're going to be able to make a sizable donation uh, for lung cancer research. Fantastic. That, that's just awesome. For those younger people out there, you know, people who maybe aren't even getting their physicals or, or maybe they're getting a physical but not doing anything else, what's the best way for younger people to, to screen for lung cancer these days? That is a great question, Trevor. And like you're aware with colon cancer, it's until you get to a certain age, there's not really anything in place unless you're symptomatic, right? Unless you, you're having right. symptoms. I mean, I think about uh, preventative healthcare things. You know, you, you get your prostate check, colonoscopy, but not until a certain age. Right. There is nothing in place for lung cancer. There is not even when you okay. get to a certain age. What Medicaid, Medicare have just approved is a screening program if you're over the age of 60 you smoked for 30 years or more. <laughs> that's that's the first step in where we're trying to get long-term. And, you know, much like with the mm. stomach and the colon, there's not a whole lot of imaging. So really, the best thing I can say about early, early prevention and early screening is that nobody knows your body better than you, and nobody knows when something is off better than you. And you know, for me, I knew something was off at least a year, maybe even more before my diagnosis. And the best prevention for lung cancer would have just been acknowledging that and, and, and swallowing the pride a little bit and just scheduling an appointment and telling a physician, hey, there's something going on with my breathing. I need to get my an x-ray or something checked in my abdomen, right. my chest area. But yeah, as we're sitting here today, we, we both know that that didn't happen for me. And so it, it's just really a matter of being your own best advocate, you know, just just speaking up, you know, like knowing, knowing when something's off in your body and not being afraid and just in, you know, embracing it. And yeah, and just go to your doctor. Like there's so many guys that I know, they're like, oh, I've had this tooth pain for like four years. It's really <laughs> killing me. I'm like, well, have you seen the dentist? No, I'm nervous about what they're going to say. I'm like, exactly. well, I know what they're going to say. <laughs> Even with colon cancer, it's been stigmatized, I think, to the point of yeah. like, you know, when people say, oh, you know, I such and such had colon cancer and they go, oh, well, they, they eat a lot of red meat or, you know, did they eat fast food? And I'm like, what? Is that your first question? Seriously? You know, like, come on. Um, and I yeah. think yeah. we got to break that stigma of like people doing it to themselves, right? Because nobody does it to right. themselves. And even if. Even if somebody decides to smoke, that's their personal choice. They sh no one deserves right. to get cancer, right? No one deserves to deal. It's such a ugly disease that just affects so many people. And so I think the more we talk about it, the more we break down those barriers, the more we encourage people to be an advocate, especially advocating for your own health uh, is a great first yeah. step. Yeah, absolutely. And that totally makes sense, especially in the absence of reliable screening. Like, I know so much about colorectal cancer, but I'm just learning about other types of cancers and what the screenings are out there. And my hope is that, you know, that a couple of years down the road, 
that you'll go just give a blood test or even a saliva test and they'll be able to tell you like, yeah, you have circulating tumor DNA. We think it's tied to this cancer and that cancer. Then you can do imaging or whatever. You know what mm-hmm. I mean? Like, but right now, like you said, the best thing to do, especially if you're a young person is listen to your body and just go see your doctor if something's wrong. Absolutely. That's great advice. Thanks for sharing that. Yeah. I dream of those days too. Like the, I think of the prostate cancer with the PSA and I think about, right. you know, what if they had that for colon cancer or for all cancers? I mean, that would just, you know, how many people's lives would be saved because they would, you know, have an early detection. Cause I, I had blood tests. I had God panels of blood tests that told the doctors absolutely nothing. I was completely healthy you know, and right. and the only thing that yeah. the only thing that was high in my body was my sed rate. I had a little inflammation. That was it. I mean, everything else was completely normal. It's just crazy to me that's kind of where we're at right now, just with the lack of screening. So time flies, and I'm already getting toward the end of the show. There's so much more I want to talk to you about around men and cancer and and the issues that we that we face, and also about the Huff Project and what's down the line. Hopefully, you know, I'd love to get you back for an update show, you know, at some point in the, in the future, if, if you'd be up for that. I would absolutely love that. I love, you know, talking about these types of topics because there's so many of us that are dealing with these diagnoses and, you know, we don't have someone to talk to us. And if I had someone that could talk to me and kind of help me back, even if it was early or if it was, you know, late in my diagnosis, either way. Yeah. Just hearing someone else's story, hearing their perspective and hearing like just seeing you and listening to you. I've listened to several of your other shows and, you know, your attitude, your disposition, everything you're doing with Man Up. It's inspiring. It really is. And I know that's (laughs) that's not always the intent. You know, like sometimes it's therapeutic. We do these things because it it helps us. But you're helping so many others. And so I would love to to come back. Thank you so much. Yeah. Oh man, thank you so much. I I really appreciate that. You and several of my direct relatives are listening to my show, which makes me feel really good. (laughs) Thank you, Stephen. So before I let you go, though, I am going to put you through the gauntlet of random questions. Uh, This is where I ask you five or six random questions just to have fun because people going through cancer, we got to lighten it up sometimes. So here we go. Absolutely. Uh, Mac or PC? Oh, PC all day. I know. (laughs) My wife and I, this is like a sad Mac user. This is a house divided to it's because I haven't made the jump. It's like going from like Android to iPhone. You know, once you do it, you never go back. (laughs) No, I get the the other admins in the Howling Place group criticize me because I'm a sheep and I'm okay with that. All right. Um, What actor I have an idea on this, but what actor would play you in a movie about your life? So I have actually been asked a couple of times um, (laughs) if I I am related to the guy that plays Dexter and John (laughs) C. Hall. I don't know if you ever looked, but I have actually been like someone's. Yes. So minus the beard, like when I don't have a beard uh, and I had a little bit longer hair. Okay, I can see that. Yeah. I can uh, see that. So I'm thinking maybe, I'm thinking John C. Hall. I don't know. (laughs) I love it. I think that's great. I was thinking like a really, a much younger, like Russell Crowe, like before Gladiator even with like the beard, like you just kind of have that like wide set jaw and like attitude. Like you may, you may be tough in the arena. So I'm going to go with that. Um, <laughs> hey, I'll take it. I'll okay. Take it. UFOs and aliens are among us. Yes or no? 
Yes. Yes. Oh, I, wow. I, I don't know why I verge on the on the edge of like conspiracy skeptic. I just think, you know, there's like we don't know, you know, I mean, there's got to be right. Like, come on. I love that you're take. I love that you're taking the stand with yes and going there. I'm with you. Oh, I'm with sure. you, Stephen Huff. For sure. Right. <laughs> for your I know you're a pitcher, but for your walk up music as a baseball player, country rock or rap? Ooh, that is a great question. If you would have asked me, okay, when I was in college, it was rap. I'll admit it. That's just how it was. You know, it was the thing. But now, 100% rock. 100% like Van Halen, Billy Squire, something along those lines. Classic rock. Yeah, classic rock. Love it, for sure. Okay, great. Favorite sandwich? Ooh, probably. That's a good one. Um. Can I like throw a caveat at you real quick? Yeah, absolutely. Okay. You can mix it up on me. I love like it's weird how much I love them. Sloppy Joes. Like oh, yeah. manwich in a can <laughs> on just like white bread, okay? I could eat it every day. Like n- no problem. Crushed it. Um <laughs> All right, well let me just finish with this one then. In the Howling Place there is a pretty hot debate over this question and it's pretty important to me, so I hope you get it right. Pineapple on pizza, yes or no? A lot Ooh. of riding on this, Stephen. Wow. I I have to be completely honest. I, honest. You got to say honest. I, I have to be honest. My wife loves it. I tried it. Yeah. I acted like I didn't like it, but I actually did like it. I'm just going to be honest. You did like it? I did like oh, it. God. I know. It was It was weird. But here's why. I can't hear you anymore, Stephen. I can't <laughs> hear you. You're you're breaking out on me. <laughs> I know. I'm sorry. It's it's one of it's those okay. weird things. Like if she's not around, like I for sure I'm not getting it. But if she orders it, I'll act like I don't like it. And I think it's just because you know, like I can't bite the bullet. I've never liked it ever in my life, and I'm not gonna pretend like I do. But it's not the worst. <laughs> <laughs> like i'll okay. eat it i'll eat it oh what about you so you're not into it, it well, no so i i say absolutely no i think it's an abomination and, <laughs> and i think it should be banned um but you know what you're such a kind and good person that i i'm gonna give you a hall pass on this all one. right we're gonna just have to we're gonna have to agree to disagree um what, is, what does so joe vote it's like what 50 does... 50 in the group oh my gosh i'm gonna blank on what, what joe thinks <laughs> We're gonna um we're gonna revisit this. We'll table it. I think I can get some more people on my side, but um, <laughs> I I accept your opinion on that. And uh, you're an awesome guy. I admire you so much. I'm glad we got connected. I I think what you're doing is fantastic. Huge fan. And however I can help uh, promote the Huff Project and what you're doing, please be in touch and let me know. Okay, brother. Thank you, Trevor. And same to you, man. I I think everything that you're you're doing, my wife. You know, when I when I was telling her I was I said I was gonna do this podcast tonight with you and she's like Yeah she goes she goes, Man up to cancer and I go, Yeah, I said, Isn't that such like a just like a great idea? Because I said, Do you remember when I was diagnosed? And she goes, Yeah, you were you know, you you did not want <laughs> to talk rough. to me at all. Like you didn't want to talk to anyone. And I go, Yeah, I mean the the whole idea is that it's we're yeah. we're helping anyone who's diagnosed with cancer deal with those feelings and emotions and, and really just like, Hey, you're not alone. Yeah. Like you feel so alone, but you're not, you know, and that's, it's, it's so vital to, to, you know, getting over that barrier 
like I wouldn't be here today if I wasn't able to kind of self-motivate, self-dig myself out of that hole. And I've seen just through a lot of other people how people struggle and they struggle, struggle so bad for such a long time. And I, I think personally that it does have an effect on you. Sure. You know, mentally. Oh, yeah. And so it's such a great man of the cancer is just such a great freaking thing, man. It's uh, like it's one of those things where it's like, dude, I, I wish I I would have thought of that. Like, <laughs> it's such a <laughs> such an awesome idea. I mean, just to, I love it, man. I love everything. Hey, it's doing, all Trevor. of us. Like, that's what I was saying. Man up to cancer is just the idea that that as men, we got to we got to stick together as a pack. And and that, like you just said, that you're not alone. So mm-hmm. having these type of conversations, phew, Man, I get goosebumps every time because I also felt very alone for quite some time in my journey. And now I've never felt more supported. So, and you're part of that. So I appreciate it. Absolutely, brother. Well, thank you. And we'll talk down the line. All right, man. That sounds great. Thanks for listening to the Man Up to Cancer podcast. If you want to get behind our mission, you can connect with us, subscribe to our email list, and check out our other content at manuptocancer.com. And if you know a man struggling with the isolation that cancer can bring, let him know about us. The Wolfpack Doors are always open.